From the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is BPR News Presents The Porch. I'm Matt Bush, and for the next hour, we will touch on three topics as we continue to process and unravel the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. History, civics, and trauma. Later this hour, we get a civics lesson from Western Carolina University political scientist Dr. Chris Cooper, and then BPR's Cass Harrington speaks with a trauma therapist about how to cope with the vicarious trauma of listening and watching the news in 2021. But first, some history. And of the 50 states, only one has been the actual site of a coup, and that is North Carolina. And for some help in telling that history, we turn to our friends and colleagues at WUNC and their podcast, Tested. Last week, they dove into the history of the 1898 Wilmington coup and its lasting legacy that still felt to this day. We now share this episode of Tested in its entirety. Tested is sponsored by Duke Health home of the Pandemic Response Network, helping communities stay safe and connected during the COVID-19 pandemic by partnering with local school, business, and faith-based organizations to launch COVID-19 system support programs in their own communities. Learn more at pandemicresponsenetwork.org. Leonita Inge. This is Test It from WUNC, a look at what the day's challenges tell us about where we are, what we believe, and who we want to be in North Carolina and the South. Today, an American coup. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I want to thank you all. God bless you. Sounds like an invitation to me. And that's exactly how thousands of violent extremists heard the words of Donald Trump when they pushed past security barricades, smashed windows, and scaled the walls of the U.S. Capitol this week. The plan was to stop lawmakers from certifying the Electoral College count, confirming Joe Biden as president and on one of the deadliest days of the pandemic in our nation. To storm the Capitol, to smash windows, to occupy offices, the floor of the United States Senate rummaging through desks, on the Capitol, on the House of Representatives, threatening the safety of duly elected officials. It's not protest, it's insurrection. And people died. No peaceful transfer of power here. How could this happen here, in America? Well, it's not like it hasn't happened before. In North Carolina, some of us have been schooled on another insurrection, one that's not well known to most Americans. In 1898, in Wilmington, North Carolina, another terrorist mob dismissed the democratic process and made an effort to overthrow the elected government there. They were successful. The day was so bloody and so against the norms of American democracy that many people just don't talk about it, even now, more than a century later. But the history of what happened in Wilmington in 1898 
is starting to make its way into mainstream understanding of the political divisions in our nation today. I'm Jim Lalutis, uh, professor of history at uh, UNC. Uh, I'm Bob Korstad. I'm a professor emeritus at the Sanford School at Duke University. Bob and Jim are authors of a book that came out during the 2020 election season called Fragile Democracy, The Struggle Over Race and Voting Rights in North Carolina. They devote many pages of that book to describing what went down more than 120 years ago when a white supremacist mob stormed the streets of Wilmington, killing and burning, in a rage over a thriving black middle class and a popular biracial fusion government. You know, in the 1890s, Wilmington was actually a majority black city. There was a significant black middle class, black schools, a black newspaper, black labor organizations, and a biracial city government. Look, and, and I think it's really important not to sort of get too misty-eyed here and, you know, remember, you know, what a what a kind of incendiary issue race could be. But Wilmington was a place uh, where black and white residents were, you know, actively creating a different kind of possibility uh, for North Carolina and, and for the South, one that was politically inclusive, one that was also economically inclusive social policies and investments in things like uh, public schools uh, that, that really created an environment of, of or had the potential to do that for the flourishing of all of Wilmington's uh, residents. People do jump very quickly from emancipation to Jim Crow, forgetting that between 1865 and 1898-1900 in North Carolina, uh, this is a long period of experimentation when people are trying to figure out just what the future is, is going to look like. Uh, and, and what was lost in that moment in November of 1898. Um, was the possibility of a, of, of a sort of true biracial democracy in North Carolina. I just want to know, what did you think when you were watching what was going on at the U.S. Capitol and the mob pretty much just really just storming the Capitol during a very pivotal time in our history, you know, as, as Congress is getting ready to, you know, approve, you know, what the electoral college results were. I mean, what did you think when you were watching that? And did you automatically think Wilmington massacre? I know I did and some other folks did, but what did you think? Leonid, this jump, uh, we couldn't help but think of November the 10th, 1898 and, and the Wilmington coup d'etat and just the, the, the close parallel in the circumstances. If you go back to North Carolina in the late 1890s, you know, what you see is that self-styled conservatives, it was the word they used to describe themselves, had been pouring enormous effort uh, into creating a perception of, of widespread voter fraud. Uh, committed, uh, they argued, by a progressive biracial alliance of, of black and white North Carolinians. And they whipped that perception into, into a frenzy and persuaded uh, many white North Carolinians that the only way to restore what they called election integrity, 
It's amazing how the words sound the same the century later uh, was through intimidation and, and violence of the sort we saw in Wilmington and, and ultimately through wholesale voter suppression uh, at the end of the 19th century through an amendment to the state constitution that disenfranchised black men. Yeah, this is Bob. Uh, just to follow up on that, you know, I think that we've seen something very similar to what took place in North Carolina in the late 19th century and in Wilmington in particular over the past decade uh, in this state and certainly over the past uh, four years uh, throughout the country. Again, this kind of perception of voter fraud that's uh, certainly in since the uh, November election being uh, perpetrated by the president and many of our uh, Congress uh, people in, in North Carolina where absolutely none exists. There's no evidence uh, that any of these uh, claims have any uh, foundation in fact. Uh, they're just all uh, made up as a way of stirring up the electorate. And they've, you know, over the course of the last decade in North Carolina, conservatives have offered a number of types of voter suppression as a way of dealing with the supposed voter fraud. Uh, again, this the issue of uh, election integrity. We had House Bill 589 and most recently the constitutional amendment requiring a photo voter ID. And, you know, as we've written about, this leads to a very dangerous situation in which people are motivated to commit violence, to commit unlawful acts like we saw in D.C. and in, in Congress as a result of this kind of perpetration of these uh, perceptions of voter fraud. So, you know, the, the links uh, between the past and the present hit us right away as we were looking at this. So when you think of the massacre and how it's been described as sort of a turning point, you know, ending reconstruction, that era and bringing on the Jim Crow era, you know, cementing segregation pretty much and the oppression of black people in the South, how might things have been, I guess, different, do you think, if, if that massacre didn't occur? This is Jim. Um you know, when I'm, I'm teaching this um, era to my students, I, I, I ask them to think through a very similar sort of question. And what's what's really remarkable, if you look back at North Carolina's history from emancipation through the Wilmington coup and, and, and black disenfranchisement, uh, is that you could argue, I think, that uh, if biracial politics uh, uh, had any possibility of success uh, in the South, it was here. I mean, during Reconstruction, a larger percentage of whites than in any other southern state went across the race line and, and allied themselves politically with newly emancipated slaves. And in the 1890s, um, white populists, black Republicans forged an alliance and, and won control of the legislature and the governor's office. The only place where that kind of fusion politics 
you know, one one control of, of state government across the board. And it was a remarkable moment. I mean, you saw expanded um, investments, uh, for example, in, in care for the poor, in, in education and health uh, and so on, a real progressive agenda. Um, so that, you know, it was a lost moment of possibility. And I'd like to think that maybe we're at a similar moment today. I mean, what's fundamentally different is how different the demography of our state and country look today. And when I when I look at that, that gives me some hope. James Leloudis and Robert Korstadt are authors of Fragile Democracy, the struggle over race and voting rights in North Carolina. You know, it's not lost on me, or most black folks I know, that the insurrection in Washington this week came after Georgia elected its first black U.S. senator, the Reverend Raphael Warnock. So when people say, this isn't America, the best response is always, learn your history. I mean, I think what we see in all of this is that the way that the modern Republican Party uh, has become, in effect, a Jim Crow caucus that looks very much like the white Democratic Jim Crow caucus in North Carolina and other southern states in the age of segregation. More in a moment. Before we move on in the show, I have a question for you. Are you ready to co-create the world we want to live in? Then I recommend you join the community listening to Our Body Politic, a political podcast that's by and for women of color, with everyone welcome to join the feast. The show offers a new view of the news, making politics personal with host Faria Chidea, a veteran black woman journalist who has reported all over the U.S. from Standing Rock to Air Force One and covered every presidential election from 1996. Each week with her passion and decades of experience, Farai gets real with women you need to hear from, like Senator Tammy Duckworth, Representative Rashida Tlaib, journalist Amna Nuwaz, author N.K. Jemison, and more. So if you want your political news to lift you up and be useful in your daily life, check out Our Body Politic. Subscribe to Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, my tweet said, just when you think things have changed from 1898, spoiler alert, looks like they haven't. This is Rhiannon Giddens. I'm from Greensboro, North Carolina, but I currently live in Limerick, Ireland. And I'm a singer, a musician, a composer, and an armchair historian. And I've been working slowly but steadily on a project about the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. Rhiannon is a Black biracial woman, a MacArthur Genius Award recipient, and a Grammy winner for her work with the Carolina Chocolate Drops. In recent years, she started thinking creatively about how to tell the story of the 1898 Wilmington Massacre. The project is still in the early development stages, but she kicked it off as part of Come Here, North Carolina's In the Water series. That's where she performed a series of folk songs from the perspectives of people of color and immigrants. I picked some of these songs because part of where I exist is at 
you know, at this point of intersection. And I think there's so much of North Carolina that exists at this point of it, of like racial intersection, of cultural intersection, class intersection. There's just a lot of points of connect. It's the jockeying for position that has been some of the biggest downfall of any kind of harmony we might have in this country is that it's the how class divides us and how it, it makes us fight each other when the people at the very top have everything anyway, <laughs> you know? So, you know, I've always, been, I always think about that in, in, in Wilmington where there were these people, you know, all kind of prospering together and sort of reaching into the middle class and like working across these lines and, you know, kind of going, you know, like they're telling us racially we shouldn't interact, but like actually we have more in common than we don't because we're, our lives are actually fairly similar, you know? And I think that that's always something that needs to be remembered um, because it is at the, fu it's, at the it's fundamentally at the core of so much that is wrong. It is manipulated and it is exploited. Um, and that's exactly what white supremacy does. You can take my body, you can take my bones, you can take my blood, but not my soul. You can take my body, you can take my bones, take my blood, but not my soul. And you think about like the folks in Wilmington, like maybe a generation out, right? Like maybe their parents, like people who were, you know, in their in their strong working age, like their parents would have been enslaved or their grandparents. And like, this is, they are their parents and grandparents like dream, right? And they're living their lives. And then, you know, mm -hmm. these folks are like, actually, no, you can't, you know? And mm -hmm. it's just, oh, you know, to see it happen so many times over and over again, so then to watch that. I know. That's what I was wondering. When you did you think about the Wilmington massacre as you watch what happened at the US Capitol? Absolutely. I tweeted about it. The parallel is people are so shocked by the folks who like stormed the Capitol and, and how blatant they are and they're carrying Confederate flags and they're they're very, very clear. And they were very, very clear in Wilmington. Like they said it. They were like, we're cleansing our city of these people, you know? So the nice thing is at least they're not hiding it anymore. <laughs> I mean, I take the silver lining where I can, I don't know. And the kid glove treatment they got, you know, it's all, it's all been seen again and again and again. Gidden says after watching what happened at the U.S. Capitol this week, it is more pressing to know what happened in Wilmington. History not easily found in school books given that it's the only successful coup on American soil, like in American history, like, you know, it seems like it should be something that should be taught, <laughs> whether you live in North Carolina or not. Rhiannon Giddens says she will continue to tell the story of the 1898 Wilmington massacre through song as a tribute to the victims. Just thinking about black excellence and thinking about um, the music of the time, what was going on. I just think there's so much to celebrate and I think you have to show the beauty of that, you know, and show like, 
black people in these outfits, like that they were wearing their hair up and all this kind of stuff that we just don't, you know, we think is a fantasy. We think like, you know, that new Bridgerton, you know, or, or Jingle Jangle, it's like, you know, oh, it's a fantasy when when black people were wearing these kind of clothes. And I was like, no, man, they were wearing them. Like we have pictures, there were people like, you know, in, you know, in this time period wearing these things and having a successful life and wanting to help other people. And I just think that um, it would just be wonderful to show that in a way that was just like, when you get to the point in the story where it all, it, it all falls apart, you feel the loss of that. You know, you feel the, the loss of that beauty, the loss of that potential you know and i think that should be the focus rather than you know rather than the violence because the violence is the focus everywhere fingers nibble fingers quick my fingers bleed to me celebrate where the beauty is and then just try to make these emotional kind of pathways for people with the music. I mean, I don't know what good it does, but I can't stop doing it. So <laughs> just keep on. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Tested. I'm Leonita Inge. Our producers are Rebecca Martinez and Charlie Shelton Orman. Lindsay Foster Thomas is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. was last week's episode of Tested from our colleagues at WUNC. We thank them for allowing us to air their work as part of ours. You can download episodes of Tested anytime from wherever you get your podcasts. Back here in Western North Carolina, the official Democratic organization for the 11th Congressional District has called for the resignation or removal from office of Republican Congressman Madison Cawthorn, who spoke at the rally prior to the insurrection in D.C. on January 6th that is being pointed to in the article of impeachment against President Trump for incitement of insurrection. Removing members of Congress is rare, but it has happened before, says Western Carolina University political scientist Dr. Chris Cooper. Over Zoom, we had a lengthy discussion about rules in our government many experts might not have even known until last week, simply for the fact there hasn't been a reason to use them for 150 years. Okay, so first of all, um, we cannot recall members of Congress. So once we've elected them, um, they are in office. They are out of our hands, essentially. So there's no way you can't get a petition. There is no way for people to individual voters to remove somebody from office. They can be expelled from office with a two-thirds vote of that chamber, right? So if you're talking about removing a member of the House, be two-thirds of vote of the House, if you're talking about the Senate, two-thirds vote of the Senate. It's extremely rare. Um, It can happen. um, It doesn't give a lot of specific rules, but they do kind of open a window for if somebody engaged in insurrection. Okay, so that is expulsion. Two-thirds of Congress right now. Let's get into that first. That would be quite 
a level to get to right now, just given the partisan makeup of Congress. The last election, Democrats now control each chamber, but by very slight majority, slighter majority than they had in the House, and now by one single vote in the Senate. So again, the difficulty of doing that right now, before we get into the history of it, there is a high level of difficulty right now in expelling a member of Congress, just given the partisan makeup of not just Congress, but obviously the United States. That's right. You would have to have some sort of a bipartisan agreement. So if you're talking about you know, trying to expel a Republican member of Congress, obviously you would need all of the Democrats, and then you would need a sizable number of Republicans. Um, And really, if the tables were turned, you'd see similar kinds of numbers. And I think for that reason, we don't tend to see this much. In the House, we've seen it five times in United States history, right? So you have 435 members of Congress over all of these different sessions of Congress. Five times it's happened. And the recent ones tend to be where people have very clearly broken the law, bribery, um, things that are easily provable. So let's go into the history of this, um, of, of members of Congress being expelled. When has it happened and for what? Yeah, so it is. It has happened five times in U.S. history. So it happened a couple of times um, right around the Civil War, um, and then in the, again in the most recent years, it tends to be things like bribery. So Jim Traficant, of course, um, somebody folks may be familiar with. He was involved in all sorts of, we'll just say, nefarious dealings, and uh, he was ultimately expelled uh, from Congress. I believe he was actually in prison when he was finally uh, um, expelled from Congress. And I'm certainly familiar to a lot of uh, political experts there, a former congressman from Youngstown, Ohio. So that would have been about 20 years ago. So it is rare that, that this happens. So if you do not expel a member of Congress, there are other ways they can be reprimanded. So let's go over some of those and let's talk about censure. It's one we've heard a lot of because it's also being discussed for the president. What does censure mean and what really is the punishment for being censured? So, yes, yeah, so censure is a formal process. Okay, so we'll talk about some later that come out of committees. This is a full vote of the uh, floor. And so, what happens is it's a simple majority. So, it's obviously a much easier mark to reach than two thirds. Um, and you stand in the well of Congress and you are publicly and formally rebuked by the House Speaker. So, if you can imagine Nancy Pelosi formally and publicly rebuking a member of the House, that would be a So it's happened 23 times in U.S. history. So certainly more than expulsion, but um, it is uh, it, it is not ordinary by any stretch. And then what leads to being censured again? Similarly, obviously, we're talking about insurrection right now, but it can be for other things. It, it can be, yes. Censure can happen for all sorts of different reasons. It's not very well defined. Um, I think essentially if you can get the votes, you can be censured. Um, there's also something called a reprimand, which is less than a censure, right? So if you think about things that take simple majority, there's the censure and there's a reprimand. Censure 23 times in history, reprimand 10 times in history. Reprimand is sort of less bad than censure. Censure would be um, uh, considered more extreme than a reprimand. And what sorts of examples do we have of censure of members of Congress who have been censured? Uh, I was thinking, what happened to Joseph McCarthy in the 1950s? How was he disciplined? In a, in a, looking at that maybe as an example is what's going on. Yeah. So, I mean, censures and reprimands, um, again, they do happen. They, it's not just a, a U.S. Civil War thing. This is It happens for sort of lesser offenses. The, the bar is much less for censure and reprimand than it is for expulsion. Um, it, 
it doesn't really do anything permanently to the person other than it's kind of a mark on your record that came from the House of Representatives. You might expect these people will be less likely to be reelected. Um, it can obviously be used in elections in the future, um, but there is, uh, you know, sort of nothing really um, formal that happens to them as a result. There are things Congress can do to discipline them that are more formal, um, but censure and reprimand are, are more kind of marks on your permanent record, if you will. Okay, so now we've gone through, through those three. What are some of the lesser, one, lesser known instances of discipline that can be measured out by Congress to members of Congress? Right. So you've got, again, this two-thirds vote. These are the hardest ones to do, obviously. Expulsion have the greatest consequences. Then you have censure and reprimand, sort of in this middle category of things that uh, kind of marks on your permanent record that come from the full body that are just simple majorities. And you have a category of things Congress can do to discipline um, members of Congress that have an even lower bar. And so these would come out of the Committee on Ethics. They don't require any action from the full House. So a letter of reproval is one of those. And most recently, uh, that one, at least for our district, uh, that was Mark Meadows in 2018, given some of the um, accusations about his chief of staff. He was given a formal letter of reproval. If you Google it, you can find that letter. This is, uh, again, kind of a uh, like when you're in school and they say this is going to go on your permanent record, that's sort of what the letter of approval is. You can also find members of Congress, and that has happened at various times throughout congressional history. You can um, take away privileges. You can um, move them off certain committees and onto certain committees. And most of those things are less formal. They, again, just come out of this committee on ethics. The fine issue I do want to bring up very briefly here, because it does seem to be right now that members of Congress can be fined. We just found out that this week they are going to fine members of Congress for not wearing masks on the floor. Um, tell us a bit more about that and how this fits into what you just said. Yeah, so fine is another way that you can um, sort of enforce uh, the rules of Congress, if you will, right? So if you think about all this as, as ways in which people have violated the rules of Congress, and of course, some rules uh, are, are, you know, make a bigger impact than others. And so fine is, is something that's pretty easy for Congress to do. Folks who are not wearing masks, they're saying now that they will find them, they will find members, um, just like you could get fined, you know, for a library fine or parking in the wrong place, you can be fined. Uh, if you try to approach the floor of Congress without a mask. Again, of particular interest for us, there's been a lot of chatter. The official Democratic Party for the district and C11 has called on Madison Cawthorn to be uh, to resign or be removed from office. Um, so the impact of this in our district that we have one of the congressmen right now that's being discussed about this um, and he had just barely taken office. He's not even been in office for two weeks at this point. So let's talk about that a bit right now, where this is going to impact, if any impact's actually going to end up coming on to Madison Cawthorn for his role in this. You know, obviously, time will tell what kind of impact we see. Um, a lot of folks are pointing to, um, uh, you know, saying that he engaged in insurrection. And that is language that is included um, in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It says you can kick people out of office if they have engaged in insurrection or rebellion. And so the argument from the Democratic Party um, is that Madison Cawthorn did engage in that by um, speaking at the rally and by stoking the flames in various ways over uh, the last few months. Um, look, I, I think it's important that the Democratic Party is calling for this in a formal way. 
clearly this is going to have to be something that is going to have to come from the Republican Party as well. We've seen some rumblings. Chuck Edwards um, certainly had some sharp words for Madison Cawthorn, but stopped short of calling for formal action, I believe. We had um, the former sheriff of Henderson County who's come out and said that he um, wishes he hadn't supported him and is sort of withdrawing his support, but he stopped short of calling for formal action from Congress. I do want to bring that up. Our newsroom talked to George Irwin Jr. this week. He said he was going to be the district director for Madison Cawthorn and has now rejected that position. Tell us the importance of the district director for a congressperson. It's it's critical. Um, uh, This is the um, kind of first line of of defense uh, between the member of Congress and their individual district. Most of us know our members of Congress, not from what they're doing in Washington, but for what they do for us at home, right? And so having somebody with political influence, like a former sheriff, um, can be really critical to to helping um, the constituents believe in that member of Congress and believe in what they're doing for the district. So I think, you know, members of Congress exist in two worlds. They exist at home and they exist in Washington. The one that we see and feel is the one at home, and that is often through the district director. Okay, we're going to move on to impeachment now, too, with the impeachment proceedings moving forward with within President Trump's last week in office. A president can still be impeached even if they're not in office anymore. So explain that to us first. Yeah, absolutely. So we got to remember, first of all, that impeachment is a formal accusation, right? So when you are impeaching somebody, uh, that does not mean you've kicked them out of office. Of course, President Trump has already been impeached. And as we saw, he stayed in office. So um, impeachment at this point could be a way to try to keep him from running for office in the future. Um, of course, the Democrats would like to keep him from running up for office in the future. And there are some Republicans who have Um, express that they think it's in the best interest of their party and their country for him to be banned from running uh, in the future. And so I think this is really, um, one, it's about punishment. Um, It is what some people will perceive as justice. And it is also about the future of the Republican Party and the future of this country. How does impeachment lead to him not being able to run for office again? Right. So, yeah, there are ways in which uh, they can kind of work that in impeachment if they are able to kick him out of office. So once they've kicked him out of office, they can um, essentially make sure that he is not eligible to be elected again. If he's not eligible to be elected again, of course, he can't then run for office. So, again, it's a kind of a way to to signify, you know, to, to shape the future of both the Republican Party and of the Republic. And this is just to say this again, I guess the, the nuts and bolts of this is this would obviously be happening once he has left office next week. Uh, president Biden is now president. This would be, I guess, how does that then happen? Is that part of the formal... I guess the formal uh, uh, Im- impeachment resolution that says he can no longer hold office. I mean, how does this work? Obviously, this is all new for us. This is the first time a president will be impeached when they're not in office. So this is all new for us. This isn't things we would have learned in civics class because um, that's never happened before. So tell us how that works. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, Matt. And so this is, it's all new. And I think we're all kind of feeling our our way through this. And And so sometimes some of these Rules are, are unclear. You sometimes have different folks interpreting the Constitution, interpreting these rules in different ways. And so I think a little bit of this gray is just something we're going to have to to learn to live with as we're all feeling our way through this problem. But essentially, yes, it would be something that is called for through the uh, formal impeachment process. Again, we're going to have to go to the House 
and to the Senate, you would have to have bipartisan agreement. This is not something the Democrats have the numbers to do themselves. They're going to need Republicans to cross over. And some Republicans have said that they will. Um, uh, so, you know, we've got prominent members like Cheney from Wyoming that have already said that they would be happy to join in on this. Um, there's some rumblings that perhaps Nancy Mace, a freshman from Charleston, might be willing to do so as well. Uh, but we're going to need to see a sizable number of Republicans. There's even a little bit of speculation that maybe Mitch McConnell, surprisingly, might not be as opposed to this as we might have thought that he would be. And two thirds of senators are needed for that to pass through the Senate once the trial would then get there, correct? That's exactly right. So this is two-thirds. Again, not a simple majority. Two-thirds. It's a high bar intentionally. And that would be about 17 Republican senators that would need to join 50 Democrats if that's if we're breaking it out strictly partisanly. So, well, that's very good. So that's kind of the civics lesson here. The history lesson of this, this has never happened either. Um, no. I want uh, your just thoughts first before I ask you the next question. Yeah, no, I mean... I, Sometimes I feel like I'm using the word unprecedented too often, but it, it is unprecedented. And, and I, I have never seen a time, nobody's seen a time like this in American history. Um, I think the fact that President Trump has not served his second term brings into brings the future into much sharper relief. Um, he has obviously signaled that he might run for office again. Um, and so trying to lock him out in the future is, is taking on renewed importance. And of course, there's no way to overstate the importance of what happened last week. Uh, an insurrection on the United States Capitol has not happened since, uh, I believe, the War of 1812. So this is not commonplace. It's not normal. And I think it's incumbent on us to acknowledge that this is this is different. In our last interview, the last interview of 2020, you talked about, I want you to go over a little bit. You talked about how Political scientists like yourself are no longer you no longer using the word polarization to talk about where the country is right now. Tell us what word you're using instead. Sectarianism. So the idea that polarization doesn't really describe, right? So polarization, you just think about poles, two opposites, kind of pulling apart from one another. And so we've seen that for a while, right? The Democratic Party moving farther to the left, the Republican Party moving farther to the right, them having less and less in common. They're opposite poles. They're polarized. But the idea is that but that really doesn't describe what we've seen. Um, we've been breaking norms. We have been, um, you know, these are not uh, gaps. These are fissures. These are valleys that are between the two parties. These are canyons in some ways. And so the idea is that they, we have folks now in sects as opposed to in parties. And this is where this term sectarianism comes in. And I think what we're all trying to figure out right now is to what degree does the Republican Party itself remain a sect, or are we going to see, even though they'll remain a formal party, kind of multiple sects within that party? And I think seeing folks like Mitch McConnell at least give the possibility that he might be willing to vote for impeachment or that he thinks an impeachment is a good idea um, suggests that we're going to continue to see these fissures in the Republican Party. So the future of our country, in a lot of ways, I think is going to depend on what path the Republican Party chooses over the next months. I'm sure I'm not the only one of our listeners that will hear the word sectarianism and think of Northern Ireland and the Troubles. That's what first example I can think of as sectarianism. That's not a. That's a, actually probably a pretty good example for us to study right now as to what's going on in the United States if we need at least very recent history to let us know what it might take to come out of this. 
I think that's exactly right. Um, and so, look, when we're talking about sectarianism, we're talking about a movement from kind of formal political channels that are polarizing into violence, into norm-breaking. Look, I've just described exactly what's happened over uh, the last few weeks in American politics. And so, yes, I think looking to what's happened in Northern Ireland, I think looking to other international examples is clearly what we should be doing. Um, and I think it is, again, incumbent on us to to call this as it's happening. This is not normal. This is not politics as usual. This is not normal partisanship. This is something else. It is, um, you know, it is more akin to what we're used to seeing in other countries. Uh, what's next? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> what's the best I way mean, to look at this? I, I, I've usually you and I end up end our conversations in a more humorous way. Yeah. Uh, this is appropriate right now. What is really next? I, I don't, I don't know either. It seems like we're just going day to day, aren't we? We are. Um, and you know, I mean, look, I do, we do usually in these conversations in, in kind of a positive way and sort of looking, um, trying to look a little bit on the, the lighter side and on the better side of things. But um, look, this is gonna be a dark, few weeks. And um, it's impossible to read the potential for violence in state capitals as well as in our U.S. capital and not be touched by that. Um, I am concerned for the future of our democracy. Um, I, of course, hope that um, we're going to be able to listen to the better angels of our nature, that we are going to be able to squash insurrection when we see it, and that we're going to be able to find a way to govern ourselves better. Um, and I think that should be the hope of folks, regardless of whether you have a DNR or something else entirely next to your name. We need to figure out a way to govern, figure out a way to move past, figure out a way to stop the arms race of sectarianism that has unfortunately defined the last weeks and months. That's Western Carolina University political scientist Dr. Chris Cooper. To close our program today, we discuss trauma. 2021 is just two weeks old, and watching and listening to the news has been traumatic so far. Coming off all that we experienced last year, each day right now can be a struggle because sometimes it's just hard to be a human. How to cope? BPR's Cass Harrington spoke with Asheville-based therapist Amilee Achikobi-Lewis. I want to start, Amilee, with the events that transpired last week in the nation's capital. A violent mob attacked what our country deems is, you know, the, the hallowed halls of our government. And of course, in the past year, we've we've seen many violent acts play out over the news. But I I feel after speaking with, you know, folks in politics or educators grappling with how to talk about this with kids, even just everyday my neighbors, you know, this was really an assault on the senses, visually seeing the, you know, the violent attack, the vandalizing, the siege that occurred in our nation's capital. And with that comes trauma of its own, even if you weren't there, just witnessing it can have psychological effects. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so there's a thing called vicarious trauma. And that's when we witness things, but we experience it in our body. And 
is actually like the trauma is happening to us because our body goes directly into the flight and fight response. The first stage is in alarm, the second stage is in resistance, and the third stage is in exhaustion. So when everyone was glued to the TV and it going through this response, they were actually in the alarm stage the shock and alarm, which is actually the flight and fight response. The flight and fight response is actually a good, it's a good stage. It can actually help you get out of a real life situation. However, we couldn't get out of a situation. So what happens is those stress hormones, they just flood around the body and there's nowhere for them to go. So what we end up doing is going into the second stage of the trauma and the stress which is resistance. If the stress hormones don't decrease, we go into what is the third stage, which is the exhaustion stage. I actually did put the question onto my, onto my Facebook and several Facebook pages to ask them what did they go through. And most people said they went into alarm, shock, they were crying. And so when we're in that resistance stage, the longer you stay in it, the longer you can't find a homeostasis within yourself, you go into exhaustion. And we know when we go into exhaustion because suddenly we feel this slump of energy. It's during the, during the final stages when we can get really sick. And so I think one of the, a few comments that I noticed on the Facebook when I asked that question is people, someone actually said they threw up. And other people said they had headaches, they had nausea, and they felt just really, really sick. So that what happened, they were going into that exhaustion stage. So that actually explains emotionally and physiologically what happens. So imagine now, none of that is still resolved. And you're going into deeper and basically deeper exhaustion, plus people are fearful about what's coming up next. So you're, you're in this loop you're in this kind of general adaption loop. And so if you don't have ways to cope, you're gonna be getting emotionally, physically sick. Yeah, I, I've heard the expression, the body keeps score. You know, whatever emotions we're experiencing, it has a physical manifestation. I'm wondering about that final stage that you're describing about exhaustion, you know, with with all these chemicals floating around in your body with nowhere to go. You're kind of trapped in in the sensation observing something horrific. Along with that, there's a lot of feeling of hopelessness because we watched a very secure building or so we thought be violated and and representatives of government their lives were at stake things that we thought could never happen did and you know thankfully people were evacuated um, but it could have been much worse and so for folks in government or media or even anyone who cares and is watching this moment they may feel like wow what do we have left what is protecting us how, how can people work through feelings of, of hopelessness or even fatalism in this moment where it's like, what, what, what do we have left? Wow. <laughs> Whew. So as you were talking, I felt tears coming up, which just proved to me that the trauma does sit in the body. I felt hopeless as well. And how did I get that hope back? What did I do when the floor was knocked out from underneath my feet basically what 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 is secure what's left as you said when it happened 
I actually painted, I started painting and also, also did a sit down meditation. I had to find a way to go back home within myself, to find a place of inner strength and inner power, a place of wonderment and belief in the wonderment of life again, a belief that there is something so much more than this rage, something so much more, and that's something that cannot be found with the intellectual mind. You have to draw the senses and the self back within to find home. And I think we all have meditated when we listen to music, when we go for a walk, what happens, the senses go back within. And to put it into technical terms, what just happened is you got your body out of the sympathetic nervous response, which is that flight and fight response. The parasympathetic nervous response is the response the body goes into when it goes into a state of sleep, deep healing, deep relaxation, dream state. And so this is what you're doing when you do any activity that draws you back inside. You have actually you have actually manually switched your nervous system over to a part of your body response in your brain that believes in hope again, that believes in the magic of life again, that knows that there is something out there and something within that can overcome. And knowing that, that life continues, just listening to the sound of your breath, it's continuing, the sun will continue to come up in the morning. It's focusing on those little simple things that keep moving us forward. Yeah, exactly, because I know when I woke up this morning and I was thinking about the question you asked about last week's events, that was exactly what happened. I When I did my meditation, I actually went into this deep state of gratitude for what? For my breath. Focusing on these things restore us. It's a restorative practice. Well, I, I want to go back to a, a term that, that you introduced out front in this conversation vicarious traumatization of merely seeing a violent event, whether it, it didn't happen directly to you, you can be watching on TV or, or even, even in a movie, something can be traumatizing. I don't want to, you know, make a silver lining out of trauma. It's painful. It's hard. But is it an indication of our human ability to empathize, to feel other people, you know, thousands of miles away from, from us. I don't know if there's something that could be drawn out of that. I think that's a really, um, really good perspective because actually why do we get traumatized from something that's not actually physically happening to us? It's what you said. I think that's a really good window and perspective to look at things is because of empathy. If you didn't have empathy, you wouldn't feel traumatized. Because empathy gives us a sense of connectivity to something. So when we were watching TV or hearing about the events, it's almost like we were that person we saw getting hurt. We were those people we thought may get hurt. Now, people who don't have this level of empathy, that's a whole nother story. That's psychological damage. But the true state of the human being, the true the true state of living beings is empathy. And that's why we feel the trauma. It's interesting to be doing this, this interview because I work in news. I have to consume it daily. <laughs> I do try to unplug at the end of the day. I'll light some candles, put on some bossa nova. But how can we healthily consume news that can be traumatizing without 
disconnecting ourselves from what's going on in the world? Very good question. The answer is because I had to dis I had to work this out for myself, and as a counselor, I've had to help other people with this. So I'm a I'm a news hound as well. That was my first profession. I would say to stay stay in touch. Give yourself a time when you're going to watch the news. Then switch off for most of the rest of the day, because you have your family. You have your whole life. You're going to miss out on. You know, if you have kids or a partner or your dog, your cat, whatever, you know. And I would recommend a regular routine of even one to two minutes of meditation. You have a breath work strategy because people talk about mindfulness. But one thing about mindfulness people don't, a lot of people don't emphasize is you can transmute your pain. You can transmute your anger through mindfulness by paying attention to the small things, you've allowed your body to go into a deep state of relaxation. You can also breathe and on your out breath, you can release the stress, you can release the trauma. I would say, and I've taught this to clients a lot, within literally half a minute, you can switch into the parasympathetic nervous system and release all anxiety from your body. Well, I think part of the power of this conversation is merely acknowledgement, you know, for, for listeners who are feeling these things, feeling discouraged or horrified, physically feeling the pain of this moment. That's natural. It's the human response. It's a matter of, okay, what can we do to take care of ourselves and, and move forward? Well, um, Amalia, I have one more question for you. Uh, listeners, I think, will be delighted to hear your accent. Um, you're from London originally. Um, and so I wonder how, if at all, watching this happen as an immigrant affected you differently, if you have a different angle that you could lend to the conversation. You know, kids who grew up in this country like myself, who went on that eighth grade trip to the capital and saw you know, where where our government came together, to see it vandalized means something to me that might be different for you. Um, th that's really good being um, from the outside, an immigrant, um, a double immigrant, because I'm from London and my family from the Caribbean. Now I live here. Makes me a triple immigrant. <laughs> so, but it, it is interesting because I do have an outside inside perspective. So when I saw the building being desecrated, I was imagining Parliament, the Parliament in London being desecrated. And that helped increase my empathy. And I was trying to also feel what others would be feeling. So that was the image. And I just knew that in London, I just knew that wouldn't happen in quite the same way. I just couldn't imagine it. So that actually increased my horror of how on earth did this happen? So I was still in that state of horror. Also, looking at the people being hurt, even though I'm from the outside, I completely identified with that as being another human being to another human being. And I knew this was a sacred building because I was able to identify the parliament. People in London would have been maybe collapsing and fainting at the idea. I mean, it's just unimaginable sacred because it was almost like the people themselves were being attacked. You are one of those people. 
you know, you meaning whoever was watching it, I felt like one of those people. I felt like humanity was being attacked. I think what was going through people's minds unconsciously was also, where's the kindness? Where's the compassion? And I think that's also how this really got got so out of hand. I mean, we're in this moment where we are distancing ourselves from each other physically for, for good reason, uh, for public health, but at a cost, you know, empathy comes from that, that interaction and seeing someone's reaction to, to our behavior. Cass, do you mind if I do one thing, but you can say no. Could I show people a really quick breath technique that will help them to release trauma and stress really quickly? Please do, yeah. So basically you can do this breath technique anywhere you are. I do this with clients who suffer from very severe chronic depression and anxiety. I call it double breathing. So you can close your eyes, you could be standing up, you could be in your office, you can be anywhere. And I'm going to talk you through it. You breathe in a little and you hold your breath. Breathe in a little more, hold. Breathe in a little more and completely and hold. Breathe out a little, hold. Breathe out a little more, hold. And breathe out completely all the stress. Breathe it all out, gently but surely. And breathe out all your stress completely. And relax. One more time. Breathe in a little. Breathe in the goodness. Breathe in a little more. More goodness. Breathe in completely. Breathe in all that good energy and hold. Breathe out a little. The stress. Breathe that stress out a little more. Relax. And breathe out completely. All the stress and relax. Completely relax. 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 That technique will de-stress you in less than half a minute, in actually just a few seconds. And it did. I feel better. <laughs> they say the best way to heal is to come back home to yourself. And it will really help you keep your sanity. It will help you keep your feet on the ground. Because a lot of times we feel like the earth, the floor, what's underneath our feet has been taken away from us. But we do have a ground. No matter what you see around you, no matter what's happening, when you do these things, you will always remember there is always something supporting you. There's always a ground underneath your feet. Emily, mm. thank you so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Cass. I appreciate you too and all the listeners. Thank you. therapist Amilee Echikobi Lewis speaking with BPR's Cass Harrington. And that concludes this episode of BPR News Presents The Porch. 
The BPR News Team is Helen Chickering, Cass Harrington, Lily Knepp, Matt Pikin, Corey Valancourt, Megan Kane, and me, Matt Bush. If you want to get in touch with us, send an email to news at bpr.org. And remember, you can listen to episodes of The Porch, plus our other two podcasts, The Waters and Harvey Show and Going Deep, Sports in the 21st Century, anytime with the free BPR mobile app or through Apple or Google Podcasts. Stay safe, mean it, and we'll see you again soon on The Porch.